it's amazing to me what can come across your desk whenever you're studying for certain things. Um, I'm a subscriber to Seth Godin. I think that's what you say is Seth Godin's blog. He is a uh, motivational uh, and kind of a mover and shaker as far as the uh, marketing goes and uh, as far as uh, thought goes in, in enterprise. He's a he's kind of a thinker, but I'm amazed that he can do a daily blog uh, every single day. But this is the one that came across uh, my desk this morning or my email this morning. Very first thing he says is uh, AI can now easily, that is in eight seconds, change the identity of somebody in a film or a video. Have you heard about this? This is called deep faking. Deep faking. It's basically a blue screen for your face. And that is that uh, person there on your uh, left. He's got this blue screen and he's got an image of another person's face that he would like to put on his face. And it's become so realistic, and you're going to hear, if you've never heard of that term, you'll hear a whole lot about, uh, more about it in the days and weeks and probably years to come, because it's becoming very, very popular, and you can't tell if the video is genuine or not. They're having real trouble in doing this because the movement of the faces and uh, the people that are speaking are very, very lifelike, and so they can do that. And in fact, Seth uh, continues and he says, multiple services can now scan a few uh, hours of somebody's voice and then fake it, uh, any sentence in that person's voice. Can you imagine seeing yourself with a video recorded message that sounds like you, that looks like you, but it's not you? He moves on. Open publishing, he says, on platforms like the Kindle means that there's no gatekeeper to verify the source of what you read. There are fake Kindle books, plagiarized material, knockoff products on Amazon. This has been a big uh, debate in the news and uh, recently because a lot of the publishing companies and a lot of the publishing um, uh, opportunities come from China. And so a Chinese uh, person can set up a business there on Amazon with something that looks genuine, but it's absolutely not genuine. And so an uh, American author can publish his own book, but then see another book that looks a whole lot like his, maybe with the same content that appears on Amazon, but it's not his book. Can you imagine that, Don, having somebody that's <laughs> copying the stories of uh, Don Martin there, uh, Billy Don Martin, uh, uh, but it's not his, not his book, not his words. Um, you've been told, don't buy anything from anybody who calls you on the phone. Be careful with your prescriptions. Don't believe a video or a photo, and especially review. Uh, luxury goods probably aren't. People don't need to access your computer. You'll be shut down for Microsoft. I don't know if you've ever gotten one of these. I've gotten one at the office one time where a guy says, uh, listen, this is Microsoft calling, and we're calling to let you know that unless you uh, give us access to your computer right now, we're going to have to shut down your Microsoft account. And I said, well, if you're able to shut down my Microsoft account without me giving you access, I said, more power to you. And he, he hung up the phone. But there was a friend of mine that was taken in by that. And he spent almost two to $3,000 because the man said he needed uh, repairs on a $500 computer in order to do that. You know, we're going, no, no, no. Um, but there's a lot of people out there that are looking to take advantage. Seth continues and finishes up his article. He says, but we need reputation. The people who are sowing the seeds of distrust almost certainly don't have your best interest in mind. He said, we've all been hacked, which means that a reshuffling is imminent, one that restores confidence to be sure that we're seeing what we think we're seeing, but it's not going to happen tomorrow, so now more than ever, it seems like we need to assume that we're being conned. It's sad, but it's true. What happens after the commotion will be a retrenchment, a way to restore trust and connection because we have trouble thriving without it. 
That last sentence, we need to restore a way for trust and connection because we have trouble thriving without it, really struck a chord with me in talking about the reason why it is that we talk about Christian evidences. What we're trying to do is restore or renew a trust in the Word of God as God's Word. It's not a knockoff. It's not a fake. It's not a forgery. It's not a uh, um, the greatest hoax, as one man said, perpetrated ever on mankind. It is something true, and it's something genuine. And renewing our faith and our understanding of the way that God revealed things to us, but also what he revealed and the content, it's, it's staggering as far as Christian evidences go. What good is a class like this to Christians who have been Christians all their lives? There's not necessarily an evangelistic push to this. Now, I don't see necessarily any visitors here this evening. And so the question comes, why do we need to study Christian evidences? There's a lot of the things we're going to discuss in here that maybe we've known for years, but maybe we've forgotten, or maybe uh, there's new content or new information that, uh, that's for us. There's two major things we want to talk about this evening. Number one is what is apologetics? But then number two, in just a few moments, we'll talk about some things that we need to come to grips with regarding apologetics. And then we'll talk uh, next week, Lord willing, about uh, our audience, who it is that we're uh, speaking to and what it is that we're trying to accomplish. What is apologetics? Christian apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. What word does that sound like? Apologia. Sounds like apology, all right? It's actually a word that means a verbal defense. It has to do with a reasoned statement or a reasoned argument. There are a couple of different places that it occurs in your New Testament, in the Greek New Testament that you have. To open your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. Acts 22 and verse 1. <clears throat> As Paul is standing there on the steps to the uh, fortress Antonia, remember that he was accused of starting a riot in, uh, in the temple. And as the people began to riot, of course, the Roman troops looking down from this fortress that overlooked the temple were able to rush down the stairs and grab up Paul, uh, who was right at the center of everything. And as they're leading him out, Paul says, listen, I would like to say something to these people that are down here that, that just uh, were previously trying to hurt me or lay hands on me. And so as he begins to stand there, the people get quiet. And note how Paul begins here in just a moment in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they all kept them more silent. Paul is giving this reasoned apologia, this defense of why it is that he is the way that he is. He's, he takes the opportunity to preach to these men Jesus. But this is that Greek word there in defense, apologia. He's giving a reasoned stance for him uh, being there in the temple and uh, and uh and believing on Christ, as it were. The second one, Acts 25 and verse 16, just a few pages over. We're not going to look at all of these, but there's, there's several and uh, several different contexts. Acts 25 and verse 16. King Agrippa came to um, visit with Festus, and as Festus was there, he had already heard Paul's defense, and Festus has to say, uh, listen, King Agrippa, I need your help on this. 
I don't know what to make of this man, Paul. Here's some Jews that are accusing him and, uh, and saying all sorts of mean things about him. And how is it that I'm supposed to handle this? Look at verse 24. Uh, excuse me, verse 20, chapter 25, verse 16. This is Festus uh, laying Paul's case, verse 14, before the king, and he says, uh, verse 16, To them I answered, it is not the customs to Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has an answer to, or an opportunity to answer. Same word, apologia, to give a defense for himself concerning the charge that is against him. Paul or the Festus is explaining the Roman law and saying this is the way we do things. We don't uh, accuse anybody. We don't condemn anybody until it is that they are able to meet their accusers face to face and give a reasoned defense uh, before their uh, before their accusers concerning the charge that's against them. Philippians chapter one verse seventeen, perhaps a little bit more famous than either one of those examples. Philippians chapter one and verse seventeen. Paul is in prison as he writes the book of Philippians. It is a prison epistle. Speaking about the people that are preaching while he is in chains. And Paul says, the former, verse 16, preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the apologia of the gospel, the reasoned argument, the statement, the verbal defense of what it was that uh, Paul has received from Jesus Christ. All right. The last one, which is going to become very, very important to us, is 1 Peter chapter uh, 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give an apologia, a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that's within you with meekness and fear. Here's a couple of things that he says. You set God apart in your heart. You make sure God is treated as special in your life. And then with that, you always be ready to give everybody an answer a reason defense for the reason for the hope that's within you is this contentious is this beating somebody over the head with the bible is this somebody that's uh that's that's uh um uh, argumentative to the point of being contentious is that the attitude what does it say is there an attitude given what is it with meekness strength under control uh, a strength turned tender is meeknesses and fear. There's a reverence there. There's a, um, there's a uh, fact that I don't want to offend if I can help it. Okay? So here's the idea. Peter, in his context of writing this, is saying there's going to come an opportunity for you to suffer for doing good. It is. It uh, seems to be that it was written under the uh, reign of the Emperor Nero, and he may not necessarily have been talking about, okay, you'd be ready to give somebody an answer for the cosmological argument for the existence of God or the uh, teleological or the ontological argument for the existence of God, but instead what he's talking about is letting somebody know why it is exactly that you're a Christian. Why is it that you're a Christian? 
how is it that you've been behaving that shows yourself to be a Christian? In fact, he would go on to say, when those people come along and they want to deride you and push you down for your good conduct, he said, they ought to be ashamed. They're going to be ashamed because they see your good conduct accompanied with fear. So it is, there's a defense that's needed and uh, understanding of how it is that, uh, that we need to behave ourselves. It has to do with examining evidence with believing with all where all the evidence points and then being able to defend your stance. Okay? If I'm going to look at this and I'm going to say, all right, here's this remote. If I let go of this remote, where's it going to go? It's going to fly up to the ceiling, of course, right? Is that right? All right, just check and make sure you're awake. If I do this and I let it go, and I'm not going to do that because uh, Troy would get mad at me if I broke his remote. And so I drop it, and I drop it, and I drop it, and I drop it again. It tells me something about the natural laws that are here, yes? That there's something known as what we call gravity in effect. And that gravity is going to be repeatable. It's going to be something that can be tested over and over and over again. And I look at that with my eye and say, that seems like it's leading towards something. I'm going to believe that if I jump off this roof, gravity is going to take over. Not going to happen, but you understand. The principle applies. And then if somebody comes along and says, no, 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 gravity is all wrong, how is it that I would prove to them and how is it that I would show to them that gravity is still in effect? If somebody comes along and says, here's the evidence for the existence of God, here's the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, here's evidence for the fact that Jesus was a real, literal, historical person, that he really lived, he really walked on this earth, he really died, and it was that his disciples really carried the gospel to all nations under heaven. And they show me the evidence for those things. What's my response to that? Oh, that's just silly. You see all the evidence laid out, and oh, no, that's just silly. Yeah, there's mountains and mountains and mountains and mountains upon mountains of evidence for Christianity. But there are still some people that will turn their minds and their hearts away because they've already made up in their mind that I don't want to believe the evidence. I don't want to look at this. But then it's a matter of me not only examining evidence, following it where it goes, but also being able to defend my conclusions. To be able to say, this is a compelling argument for the existence of God. This is a compelling argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a compelling argument for the inspiration of the New Testament. This is a compelling argument for the idea that man and dinosaurs lived together at the same time. Are these anything that this world needs to hear? Is this anything that Christians need to hear? What do you think? Yes, no, maybe so? All right, Morris, there he goes, quoting scripture on me. First uh, Peter 3.15, the scripture that we just read just a moment ago, we have a responsibility as people of God, as children of God, as people who have been blood-bought with uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, to give a reasoned answer, an apologia for the reason for the hope that's within us with meekness and fear. So it is, this is your responsibility, this is my responsibility. Have you ever thought about the amounts of people who accept things without any kind of evidence at all? That just swallow things hook, line, and sinker without ever really checking? Some of those things that we talked about just a few moments ago with the internet scams, you know, uh, um, 
uh, Ethiopian prince wants to send you $75 million in, in, in gold bullion. And Okay, great. And there ought to be something that goes, wait a minute, hold on just a second. No, you go and you look at a brand new car, and you go or a, a brand new used car. I'm, that's what I meant. Uh, you go and look at a used car, and a, a sweet little lady that's uh, selling it to you opens up the door, and there's sitting there a, um, a 65 Mustang, and she looks at it and she says, "It's got 87 miles on it. I only drove it from here to the church and back, and and uh, it's just been sitting in this garage, mint condition." Well. You're somewhat foolish if you just take that person's word for it and never really go and look at the evidence of that altogether. You take a car guy like Ken with you, and you go around, you kick the tires, you open up the hood, you see if they're all original components, you check on how it is at, uh, in the interior and all those different things, and then you're able to see and evaluate and make a judgment based upon what it is that you've already heard. Folks, the Bible's the same way. It should never be anything that we just accept just because the preacher said it or the elder said it or because mom and dad believed it or anything else. It's something that you ought to be able to take and test for yourself and realize that it's true. It's true. Carrie. All right. Uh, Carrie brings up Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Okay. The Bereans. Um, we're listening to the message about Jesus. And as Paul preached to them, he didn't just leave it to them and say, listen, uh, just accept what I say. You don't, have to, you don't have to look for yourselves. He said instead what the Bereans did was they went back to their Bibles, they opened them up and said, are these things really true? Is this really the way the Old Testament lays? Is this really what was going on? And did it really point to this man, Jesus, as being our Messiah? You ever get upset or offended that somebody wants to check you out? <laughs> that uh, you you say, no, 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 I've already looked at it. I've already looked. It's it's 75 miles from here to Spring, Texas. I've already looked at it. Well, I just want to look for myself. No, 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 no. I've already looked at it. It's never an argument that husband and wives have. Is it? You know, is this the best and most direct route? Yes, it is, because Google told me, well, what about Waze? Did you check on Waze? No, I don't need to check on Waze. I've already looked on Google. And, and uh, next thing you know, she's pulling out her cell phone and check. I'm just hypothetically, hypoth y'all, hypothetically. Right. Second point this evening, moving rapidly along. Well, let me stop and back up just a moment. I was trying to move away from that last point, and uh, and I didn't want to stop. And thank you, I appreciate that, Nelda. My face is red. Awesome. Um, when you think about how it is that our college classrooms run, you know, parents worry a lot of cases about sending their kids to college because when you get a professor up there with a lot of letters behind his name, there's an ethos, a credibility there that that man has that when they look at that big, massive, fat textbook that they've got to study for the entire quarter, and it teaches things like atheistic evolution, and it teaches things like, um, you know, the Big Bang Theory or, or other uh, secular doctrines about the way that man has looked at the world and, and hypothesized about the way things work, there's a real danger in just giving them 
in opportunities like this with our Bible classes just to say, well, that's just something you got to accept. That God, God is real and that's just it. Well, give them something more because you know that that man in that white lab coat with that big fat textbook and all those letters after his name is going to point them to evidence. Here is why we believe in the evolution of the species. You see, we found these bone fragments over here. We found these things that uh, show, and it's just a matter of time before we find the missing link that's going to prove that there is an ancestry between apes and mankind. And they're pointing them towards evidence and biology and astronomy and, and uh, 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 geology and all sorts of different things. And they're laying out those things in the case for secular humanism. And the question has to be asked, have we prepared our kids for an assault like that on their faith? Have we helped our kids whenever they go off to college and are confronted with these ideas to say, no, I reject that because I understand the evidence points to an all-knowing, all-powerful creator that made this world in six literal days and then rested on the seventh day. For them, for the man in the white lab coat with all the letters after his name, that's just a fantasy, isn't it? But, you know, the psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The problem is that there's people that are less able to defend their faith. You know, there's atheists that have things like stump the Bible thumper cards, reality cards. I found this on the Internet. Uh, they have ten cards with five questions on each card. One of the questions, if the Bible is the unchangeable word of God, why does Mark 15.25 state that Jesus was crucified on the third hour of the day, that is 9 a.m., while John 19.14 states that it was six hour, that is 12 p.m.? Could you respond to this objection? Could you show that this is not a contradiction, but rather there's a, a logical and a meaningful way that we can bring into harmony these two passages? There are things that you and I need to continue studying and continue growing in with regard to this subject. Things to come to grips with. Number one, we need the reinforcement and authentication of truth. The reinforcement and the authentication of truth. I like those submarine movies, uh, things like Hunt for the Red October or uh, whatever the one with Gene Hackman was. Um, but uh, there's always a scene in those submarine movies that you watch where it is that they have the, the EAM thing, the light that flashes, and it shows that there's a message, a communique coming in. And they print off it and they rip it off and they come over and uh, the XO uh, looks at it and says, the message is authentic. And he hands it to the CO and the CO says, the message is authentic. And then they uh, go and they get their keys and they turn them. Are you ready to authenticate the message? What are they doing? Well, they're making sure that they don't push the red button too soon. Authentication. People need to know what they believe is genuine. What they have is the real deal. Why do people take their artwork into Antiques Roadshow? Why do they go and do those things and go through this and say, wow, this is an authentic 16th century Ming Dynasty vase or whatever it is? Why do they do that? Because they want to know this is real, that this is genuine. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Hebrews writer says, therefore, speaking about the greatness of Jesus, 
speaking about how he's so much greater than the angels. He begins this paragraph by saying, Therefore we must give the more earnest things to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Okay, is this just hearing with no examination of the evidence? He said, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received just a reward, here's the messenger of God speaking God's message. And as they spoke, God's word came to pass every single time. There was not a time where God spoke where his word didn't come to pass. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we, so, uh, if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was, New King James says, confirmed, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Is this what Jesus said? Yes, it is. I'm going to go down here to this other apostle. Is this what Jesus said? Yes, it was. All throughout your New Testament are peppered these statements about how it was that we have the transmitted word from Jesus through, uh, sent by his Holy Spirit, sent to his apostles to be given to mankind for the glory of God, for the salvation of souls. That word, the Hebrews writer said, proved steadfast. It proved reliable. You can count on it. Let's authenticate the message. Let's make sure that it is. Well, what about all the manuscripts that we have? How many fragments and how many uh, sections of manuscripts of the, uh, of the biblical writings do we have? Are there any deviations in those things? What are those deviations? Are those deviations like uh, big things? Are they things that are, will affect somebody's faith? Are they things that will tear somebody down? The answer is no. They're genuine. They're re real. They're reliable. And as you look at them, it's faith-building. It's faith-building because you've authenticated the message. This is the message that Jesus Christ wanted spoken. It's something that I can trust with my life. It's something that I can trust with my soul. Anybody has a question or comment, stop me at any time. Be glad to go, otherwise we're going to keep rolling. Number two, it's important to realize that doubt comes to every man. Doubt comes to every man. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 38. <clears throat> After Jesus was resurrected from the dead, <coughs> there have already been several that have come back and given a uh, uh, testimony to say the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Well, okay, I'll just take your word for it. There were several that ran over there and went because they had heard the tomb was empty. They wanted to see it for themselves. But as the tomb was empty, uh, now it is, verse 35, they were told about the things that had happened to them on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen his spirit. Note what Jesus says. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do your doubts arise in your heart? Anybody ever have doubts arise in their heart? Is this something that I've ever, that I bought into that's real? Is this something that I bought into that's just a fiction? Am I, as Paul would say in his argument about the resurrection from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, is Jesus really risen from the dead? If he's not, I'm a pitiable person and so are you. We're all pitiable people because we're wasting our time. We bought into something that's not genuine. 
But over and over and over again, the Lord wants us to bring our doubts to Him. He is bigger than our doubts. He's got the answer for our doubts. And the answer is classes like this one and opportunities like this one where we can delve into what it is that God's revealed, how He's revealed it, what it is that nature says about God, uh, what it is that the universe says about a divine sovereign creator, and then looking at those things again and saying, aha, I see it. I see it. And taking those doubts and letting them melt away in the truth of a sovereign God. It's a wonderful thing. But realize that just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we don't doubt from time to time. You're not alone if you do. And I think one of the mistakes we make sometimes with our young people is telling them just, well, your doubts don't matter. Or maybe pushing those things to the side instead of taking time like what we're doing and opening up the Bible to them and showing them the reliability of the New Testament. The fact that over thousands of years, 40-plus writers were able to combine and come and, and without knowing each other in different geographical uh, regions, different languages, were able to be inspired to write one book with a singular purpose, with a singular unity. Amazing. Amazing. Over a period of 1,500 years. But doubt comes to every man. But it is that we don't need to bury those things as if they don't matter, but instead take them to God. Somebody have a question? Comment? Yes, ma'am. Janice mentions the fact that when her younger son, or oldest son rather, uh, came to them as teenagers and began to ask questions like this, her, uh, her first reaction was, oh no, he hasn't been taught well. But she said it wasn't from a point of trying to poke holes in things, but the fact that he didn't want to doubt. Uh, he wanted to know the answers about why it is that we believe certain things, and that's giving an apologia, a reasoned defense. And so if it is that you've got kids at home maybe that uh, are asking you hard questions or asking questions about um, why they're suffering and why there's evil, pain, and suffering, why a good and sovereign God allows those things, don't shy away from those discussions. Be patient. It's okay to say, I don't know, but I will get back to you, and you'll be sure you do. Don't push those things under the carpet and hope they'll go away, but you study for yourself so that you can be able to give an apologia to your children, to your grandkids, or whoever it may be. It's an excellent point. Peggy? Peggy uh, brings up um, John 20. Uh, the discussion that Jesus has with Thomas, and I think I'd cited that in one of these uh, one of these points. Um, we'll come back to that. Flip over to John chapter twenty, please. <coughs> Excuse me.
Note in John chapter 20, we have the occasion of who we call Doubting Thomas. We give Thomas a hard time sometimes, but you know, <laughs> Thomas was just asking for the same thing that the other disciples received. You ever realize that? Look back up at verse 20. He's there at the same day, uh, sorry, verse 19, same day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, stood in the midst of them, and said, Peace be still. When he'd said this, he showed them, who's he showing? Well, it's the ten minus Thomas, okay, or, yeah, ten without Thomas. He showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So it seems like they needed some kind of proof that he was really resurrected just the same as Thomas did. Only difference is Thomas was singled out because he wasn't there with them on that occasion. Uh, verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being set, stood in the midst of them, and said, Peace be to you. He said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hands here, put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. What did Jesus provide for Thomas before we leave this point? He provided for him the evidence that Thomas needed to see in order to believe. Doubting Thomas was given the same opportunity the other apostles had to see the hands of Jesus, to put his hand in his side, to see the holes in his feet. And so it was that Thomas, verse 28, answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Here's the question that Peggy had. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Is this a contradiction of this point that doubt comes to every man and we need to bring our doubts to God? Because it seems like what Jesus is saying is just believe, right? Is that what he's saying? Yes, no, maybe so. Look down at the next two verses. Look down at the next two verses. Truly, Jesus did many other signs. That's a key word in the book of John. You'll find it again and again and again throughout the book. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What John is saying is, I am a credible eyewitness to this. I am a credible eyewitness to the fact that I put my hands in Jesus' hands. I put my hands in his side. I saw the resurrected Lord. I followed him around in his ministry for three and a half years. You can trust my witness. In fact, you would go so far as to say that in um, 1 John chapter 1 and talking about the things that we've seen, things we've heard, that we've handled with our own hands. We've committed these things to you so that it is that you can have fellowship with us. I'm paraphrasing the first four verses. But you understand that the apostles, they are credible eyewitnesses. They're men who have seen and have handled, and we can trust them. So we bring our doubts and we say, are these men trustworthy? Are they reliable with their message? And that's one of the things we'll talk about, Lord willing, this quarter. But that's an excellent point, an excellent question to be made. We mentioned just a moment ago, it is our job to defend the faith. First Peter 3, verse 15. Jude 3 says, uh, I want you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered. Contend for it. Stand up for it. Don't just lay there when somebody's berating the Lord and saying, well, Jesus Christ was never a, a real person, that God's just a figment of somebody's imagination. Religion is the opiate of the masses, as Nietzsche said. All those things that people want to level against Christianity 
you make sure that you stand up and you defend it. Defend why it is that you believe what you believe. Don't be contentious. Don't be angry. Don't be argumentative about it. You do it with absolutely 1 Peter 3.15, meekness and fear. But it's worth standing up for. It's worth saying, my Lord is real. My Lord is real. In fact, there was a man that was, um, <laughs> James Kennedy was his name, was motivated to uh, write a book on apologetics after he heard a radio talk show. He, um, there was a host on the radio that, uh, as he was driving in his car, who was interviewing an atheist. And uh, Mr. Kennedy says, while frantically waiting to get a call through the station, he said, I listened to a dozen or more Bible-believing callers talk to this man, this atheist. He said, I was appalled at the ease with which he was chewing them up and spitting them out. He said, it seemed that every Christian who called was incapable of giving an intelligent reason for the faith that he or she held. They would say, the Bible says such and such. They would begin to try and support what he was saying. The atheists would counter, well, why do you believe the Bible? And every single one of them was reduced to stammering out something like, well, I've got it down in my heart. And the atheist would answer, well, it's not down in my heart, friend, and I don't believe it. How would you answer the atheist? How would you talk to him? How would you make an apologia about the things that you believe? We sometimes take the believe this and don't ask any questions approach. We've already mentioned this a couple of times, um, but this is never any of the, one of those things that we uh, want to take for granted or uh, an answer that we give regarding our faith. Okay? There's also the people that take the Archie Bunker approach to Christianity. Archie Bunker years ago uh, made the statement, faith is believing in something that nobody in their right mind would believe, something like that. And there's a lot of people that believe Christians are the exact same way. They believe in something that nobody in the right mind would believe. We'll talk a little bit about faith next time and what that actually is. Citing the passage that Peggy pointed us to, the Lord himself is interested in us examining the evidence. The Lord wants us to. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 and verse 1. When you look at the things that are made and the way that they're made, and how logical and how orderly and how good this world has been created, it ought to be something that screams out, there is a creator and he is not silent. The Bible itself is a book that cries out for us to test. Have you ever thought about that? No, we can't question the Bible. No, we can't ask questions about the Bible. The Bible is just the Bible. Well, when you find a passage like First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, prove all things. How much is all? It's everything. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. What's he saying? Think about the evidence. Follow the evidence. Hold on to what it is that that evidence reveals. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Does that include the Bible? If the Bible really is from God, will it hold up to your scrutiny, to my scrutiny, to time scrutiny? The answer is yes. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize this. This is an exciting quarter because it's really exciting and faith-building to see the accuracy and see the truth of what it is that we believe. I don't know how long it's been since you've had a class like this, but I'm looking forward to it, and I hope that you are too. And I hope it is that if you have questions along the way, um, go ahead and email those to me or pass them to me in a note, and uh, we'll do our best to deal with them throughout the quarter. So thank you all very much, and we'll uh, dismiss because... People are, give me.